and welcome to another episode of The Bike Shed, a weekly podcast from your friends at ThoughtBot about developing great software. I'm Joelle Kenville. And I'm Stephanie Min, and together we're here to share a bit of what we've learned along the way. So Stephanie, what's new in your world? I have a delightful and cute Ruby thing to share I had seen just in our internal company Slack. Honey Badger, the air monitoring service, has created a cute little um, webpage called exceptionalcreatures.com where they've basically illustrated and characterized various common Ruby errors into little monsters. <laughs> and I find them adorable. I think their goal is also to make it a really helpful resource for people encountering these kinds of errors, learning about them for the first time and figuring out how to triage or debug them. And I just think it's a really cool way of like making it super approachable, debugging and, and you know, when you first encounter a scary error message can be really overwhelming and then Googling about it can also be equally uh, overwhelming. So I just really liked the whimsy that they kind of injected into something that could be really hard to learn about. Like, there's so many different error messages, right, in Ruby and Rails and all whatever other libraries you're using. Uh, and so that's kind of a, I think they've created a one-stop shop for, you know, figuring out how to move forward with common errors. And I also like that it's a bit of a collective effort. They're calling it like a bestiary for all the little creatures <laughs> that they've discovered. And uh, I think you can like submit your own favorite Ruby error and any guidance you might have for someone trying to debug it. That's adorable. It reminds me a little bit of HTTP status codes as cat memes site has that same energy. One thing that I think is really interesting is that uh, because it's Honey Badger, uh, they have stats on like frequency of these errors. And a lot of these ones are tied to, I think they're picking some of the most commonly surfaced errors. Yeah, there's little like ratings too for how frequently they occur. Kind of just like, I don't know, Pokemon. <laughs> uh -huh. I, think. I think it's really neat that they're using something like a learning from their business or maybe even some like proprietary information and sharing it with the world so that we can learn from it. I think one thing it's worth specifying as well is that these are specific exception classes that get raised. So they're not just like random uh, error strings that you see in the wild. They don't often have a whole lot of documentation around them. So it's nice to see a dedicated page for each and a little bit of uh, maybe how this is used in the real world versus maybe how they were designed to be used. Maybe there's a line or two in the docs about you know core Ruby when a no method error should be raised. How does no method error actually get used, you know, in real life in the exceptions that Honey Badger is capturing? Uh, that's really interesting to see. Yeah, I like how each page for the exception class, and I'm glad you made that distinction, is kind of like crowdsource guidance and information from the community. So I think you could even, you know, contribute it to it if you wanted. But yeah, just a fun little website to bring you some delight when you're on your next head-smacking <laughs> debugging adventure. <laughs> I love that it brings some, some joy to the topic. But honestly, I think it's a pretty good reference. I could see myself uh, linking to this anytime I want to have a deeper discussion on exceptions. So maybe there's a code review and you know maybe I want to suggest that we raise a different error than the one that we're doing. I could see myself in that GitHub comment 
being like, oh, instead of a you know raising exception here, why don't we instead raise uh, no method error or something like that, and then link to the bestiary page. So, Joel, what's new in your world? So, just recently, RailsConf announced their call for proposals. It's a fairly short period this year, uh, only about three-ish weeks long. So I've been really encouraging colleagues to submit and trying to be a resource for people who are interested in speaking at conferences. We did a Q&A session with a uh, fellow thought butter, Ajay Slater, who's also a uh, former RailsConf speaker, uh, about what makes for a good talk. Uh, what is it like to submit to a call for proposals? You know, kind of everything from the process from having an idea all the way to stage presence and delivering. And there's a lot of great questions that got asked and some good discussion that happened there. Nice. Yeah, I think I have noticed that you are doing a lot more to help, especially first-time speakers, give their first conference talk this year. Uh, And I'm wondering if there's anything you've learned or any hopes and dreams you have for kind of the amount of time you're investing into um, supporting others. And what I'd like to see is uh, a lot of people submitting uh, proposals. That's always a, a great thing. And a proposal, even if it doesn't get accepted, is a thing that you can resubmit. And so having gone through the effort of building a proposal and especially getting it maybe peer-reviewed by some colleagues to polish your idea, I think is already just a really great exercise. And it's one that you can shop around. It's one that you can maybe convert into a blog post if you need to. Uh, you can convert that into uh, some kind of podcast appearance. So I think it's it's a great way to take an idea you're excited about and focus it, even if you can't get into RailsConf. I really like that metric for success. It reminds me of a writer friend I have who actually was a guest on the show, Nicole Zhu. She submits a lot of short stories to magazines and uh, applications to writing fellowships. And um, she celebrates every rejection. <laughs> I think at the end of the year, she like celebrates herself for having submitted, having received, you know, like 15 rejections or something that year, because that meant that she just went for it and you know, did the hard part of doing the work, putting yourself out there. And that is just as important, you know, uh, if not more than the whatever achievement or, or goal or, or the idea of having something accepted. Yeah. No, I have to admit, rejection hurts. It's not not a fun thing to go through. But I think even if you you sort of make it to that that final stage of having written a proposal and it gets rejected, you get a lot of value out of that journey, sort of regardless of whether you get accepted or not. So I encourage more people to do that. To any of our listeners who are interested, the RailsConf call for proposals goes through February 13th, 2024. So if you are listening before then and are inspired, I recommend submitting. If you're unsure what makes for a good CFP, RailsConf is currently offering coaching sessions to help craft uh, better proposals. Uh, They have one on February 5th, one on February 6th, and one on February 7th. So those are also options to look into if this is maybe your first time and you're not sure. 
There's a sign up form. Uh, we'll link to it in the show notes. So another update I have that I'm excited to get into for the rest of the episode is my recent work on our support and maintenance team, which I've talked about on the show before. But for any listeners who don't know, uh, it's a kind of sub team at ThoughtBot that is focused on helping maintain multiple client projects at a time. But at this point, you know, there's not as much active feature development, but the work is focused on keeping the code base up to date, making any dependency upgrades, um, fixing any bugs that come up, and general support. So clients have a team to kind of address those things as they come up. And when I had last talked about it on the podcast, I was really excited because it was a bit of a different way of working. I I felt like it was very novel uh, to be, you know, have a lot of different projects and domains to be getting into. And knowing that I was working on this team like short term and, um, you know, it may not be me in the future continuing what I might have started during my rotation. I thought it was really interesting to be optimizing towards like completion of a task. And that had kind of changed my my workflow a bit and my process. So now that you've been doing uh, work on the support and maintenance team for a while, and you've kind of maybe gotten more comfortable with it, how are you generally feeling about this idea of sort of jumping into new code bases all the time? It is both fun and more challenging <laughs> than I thought it would be. I tend to actually really enjoy that period of joining a new team or a project and exploring you know, a code base and getting up to speed. And that's something that we do a lot as consultants. But I, I think I started to realize that it's a bit of a tricky balance to figure out how much time should I be spending understanding what this code base is doing? Like how much of the application do I need to be understanding? And how much poking around should I be doing before just trying to get started on my first task, the first starter ticket that I'm given? There's a bit of a, a balance there because on one hand, you could just immediately start on the task and kind of just, you know, have your blinders on and not really care too much about what the rest of the code is doing outside of the change that you're trying to make. But that also means that you don't have that context, right? Of why certain things are the way they are. Maybe like you, what the way that you want to be building something actually won't work because of some unexpected complexity with the app. So I think there, you know, need to be time spent digging around a little bit. But then you could also be digging around for a long time and before you feel like, okay, I finally have enough understanding of this new code base to like build a feature exactly how a seasoned developer on the team might. I imagine that probably varies a little bit based on the task that you're doing. So something like, oh, we want to upgrade this code base to Ruby 3.3 probably requires you to have a very different understanding of the code base than... uh, there's a bug where submitting a comment double posts it uh, and you have to dig into that. Both of those require you to understand the application on very different levels and kind of understand different mental models of what the app is doing. Yeah, absolutely. That's a really good point that it can depend on what you are first asked to work on. And in fact, I actually think that is a good guidepost for where you should be looking because you you could develop a mental model that is just completely unrelated <laughs> to what you're asked to do. And so I, I suppose that is, you know, usually a good place to start, at least is like, okay, I have this first task, and there is 
you know, some understanding and acceptance that like the more you work on this code base, the more you'll explore and discover other parts of it. And that can be on a need to know kind of basis. So I'm thinking that if you're doing something like a Ruby upgrade or even a Rails upgrade, a lot of what you care about the app is going to be on a more mechanical level. So you want to know what gems you're using. You want to know what different patterns are being used, maybe how callbacks are happening, any particular features that are version specific that are being used, things like that. Uh, whereas if you're, you know, say fixing a bug, you might care a lot more about some of the product level concerns. What are we actually trying to do here? What is the expected user experience? Um, how does this deviate from that? What were the underlying mental models of the developers? So it's almost like two lenses you can look at the code. Oh, now I almost want to make this a two-dimensional thing where you can look at it either from like a very kind of mechanical lens or a product lens in one axis. And then on the other axis, you could look at it from a very like high-level 10,000-foot view and maybe zoom in a little bit where you need versus a very localized view. Here's where the bug is happening on this page and then sort of zoom out as necessary. And I can see different sorts of tasks falling in different quadrants there of, do I need a more mechanical view? Do I need a more product-focused view? And do I need to be looking locally versus globally? Wow. I can't believe you just created a Cartesian graph for this problem on the fly, but I love it. Because I do think that actually lines up with different uh, strategies I've taken before, right? It's like, how much do you even look at the code before deciding that you can't really get a good picture of it, of what the product is without just poking around from the app itself. I actually think that I tend to start from the code. Like maybe I'll, I'll see a screenshot that someone has shared of the app, you know, like a bug or, or something that they want me to fix. And then looking for that text in the code first and then trying to kind of follow that path. Whereas it's also, you know, perfectly viable to try to see the app being used in production or staging or something first to get a better understanding of what the problems and the business problems is trying to solve. When you jump into a new code base, do you sort of consciously take the time to plan your approach or sort of think about like how much knowledge of this new code base do I need before I need, I can like actually look at the problem at hand? Oh, that's kind of a hard question to answer because I think my experience has told me enough times that it's never what I think it's going to be. Not never, but it, it frequently surprises me. It has surprised me enough times that it's kind of hard to know off the bat, right? Because it's not, you know, as much as we work in frameworks that have opinions and conventions, what a lot of the work that happens is understanding how this particular code base and team does things, and then having to maybe shift or adjust from there. So I think I don't do a lot of planning. I don't really have an idea about how much time it'll take me because I can't really know until I dive in a little bit. So that is usually my first instinct. Even if someone is wanting to like talk to me about uh, an approach or be like, hey, like, how long do you think this might take based on your experience as a consultant? This is my first task. Oftentimes, I really can't say until I've had a little bit of downtime to, in some ways, like acquire the knowledge <laughs> to figure that out or answer that question. How much knowledge do you like to get upfront about an app before you dive into actually doing the task at hand? Uh, are there any things like when you get access to a new code base that you'll always want to look at to get a sense of the project before you look at any tickets? 
I actually start at the model level. Usually I am curious about what kinds of objects we're working with. In fact, I think that is really helpful for me. They're like building blocks in order for me to like conceptually understand this world that's being represented by a code base. And I kind of either go outwards or inwards from there. Usually if there's a model that is like calling to me, as like, oh, I'll probably need to interact with. Then I'll go and seek out like where that model is created, maybe through controllers, maybe through background jobs or something like that, um, and start to piece together entry points into the application. I find that helpful because a lot of the times it can be hard to know whether certain pages or routes are even used at all anymore. They could just be dead code and could be a bit misleading. I've certainly been misled um, more than once. And so I think if I'm able to pull out the main domain objects that I notice in a ticket or just hear people talk about on the team, um, that's usually where I gravitate towards first. What about you? Do you have a place you like to start when it comes to exploring a new code base like that? The routes file is always a good sort of overview of like what is going on in the app. Scanning the models directory is also a great start uh, in a Rails app to get a sense of what is this app about? What are the core nouns in our vocabulary? Another thing that's good to look for in a code base is what are the big types of patterns that they tend to use? The Rails ecosystem goes through fads and over time, different patterns will be more popular than others. And so it's often useful to see, oh, is this an app where everything happens in service objects? Or is this an app that likes to rely on uh, view components to render their views? Things like that. Once you get a sense of that, you get a little bit of a better sense of how things are architected beyond just the basic MVC. I like that you mentioned fads because I think I can definitely tell, you know, how modern an app is or kind of where it might be stuck in time a little bit based on those patterns in libraries that it's uh, heavily utilizing, which I actually find to be an interesting and kind of challenging position to be in because how do you approach making changes to a code base that is using a lot of patterns or styles from back in the day? Would you continue following those same patterns or do you feel motivated to introduce something new or kind of what might be trendy now? This is the boring answer, but it's almost never worth it to like rewrite the code base just to use a new pattern. Just introducing the new pattern in some of the new things means there are now two patterns. That's also not a great outcome for the team. So without some other compelling reason, I default to using the established patterns. Even if it's something you don't like? Yes. I'm not a huge fan of service objects, but I work in plenty of code bases that have them. And so where it makes sense, I will use service objects there. Service objects are not mutually exclusive with other things. And so uh, sometimes it might make sense to say, look, I don't feel like I can justify a service object here. I'll do this logic in a view, or maybe I'll pull this out into some other object that's not a service object. And that can live alongside nicely, but I'm not necessarily introducing a new pattern. I'm just deciding that this particular extraction might not necessarily need a service object. That's an interesting way to describe it, not as a pattern, but as kind of like choosing not to use the existing pattern. But that doesn't mean like totally shifting the architecture or even how you're asking other people to understand the code base. And I think I'm in agreement. I'm actually a bit of a follower, too, <laughs> uh, where I want to 
I don't know, just make things match a little bit with the what's already been created, follow that style. That becomes pretty important to me when integrating with a team in a code base. But I actually think that, you know, when you are calibrating to a code base, you, you're in a position where you don't have all that baggage and history about how things need to be. And maybe you you might be empowered to, to have a, a little bit more freedom to question existing patterns or bring some new ideas to the team to hopefully like help the code evolve. I think that's something that I struggle with sometimes is feeling compelled to follow what came before me um, and also wanting to introduce some new things just to see what the team might think about them. A lot of that can vary depending on what is the pattern you want to introduce and sort of what your role is going to be on that team. Uh, But that is something that's nice about someone new coming onto a project. They haven't just sort of accepted that things are the way they are, especially for things that the team already doesn't like, but doesn't feel like they have the energy to do anything better about it. So maybe you're in a code base where there's a ton of Ruby code in your ERB templates. And it's not really a pattern that you're following. It's just a thing that's there. It's been sort of the path of least resistance for a long time, and it's easier to add more lines in there. But nobody likes it. New person joins the team, and their naive exuberance is just like, we can fix it. We can make it better. And maybe that's you know, going back and rewriting all of your views, that's probably not a best use of their time. But it could be maybe the first time they have to touch one of these views, cleaning up that one and starting a conversation among the team. Hey, here are some patterns that we might like to clean up some of these views instead. Or here are maybe some guidelines for anything new that we write that we want to do to keep our views clean. Uh, and sort of start moving the needle in a positive direction. I like the idea of moving the needle, even though I tend to not want to stir the pot with any big changes. One thing that I do find myself doing is in a couple of places in the specs, just trying to refactor a bit away from using let's. There were some kind of forward thinking decisions made before when our spec was basically going to deprecate using the describe block without prepending it with their module. So just kind of throwing that in there whenever I would touch a spec and asking other people to do the same. And then recently, one kind of like small syntax thing that I hadn't seen before, and maybe this is just because of the age of the code bases in which I'm working, the argument forwarding syntax in Ruby that has been new. I mean, it's like not totally new anymore, (laughs) but throwing that in there a little every now and then to just kind of shift away from this you know, dated version of the code kind of towards things that other people are seeing and in, in, in newer projects. I love harnessing that energy of being new on a project and wanting to make things better. How do you avoid just being, you know, that developer, though, that's new, comes in and just wants to change everything for the sake of change or for your own personal opinions and just kind of moves things around, stirs the pot, but doesn't really contribute anything net positive to the team? Because I've definitely seen that as well. And that's not a good first contribution or, you know, contribution in general as a newer team member. How do we avoid being that person while still capitalizing on that energy of being someone new and wanting to make a positive impact? Yeah, that's a great point. And I kind of alluded to this earlier when I asked like, oh, like, like even if you don't like an existing syntax or pattern, you'll still follow it. And I think liking something a different way is not a good enough reason. <laughs> 
But if you are able to have a good reason, like I mentioned with the RSpec prepending, you know, it didn't need to happen now. But if we would hope to upgrade that gem eventually, then yeah, that was a good reason to make that change as opposed to just purely aesthetic. <laughs> That's one where there is pretty much a single right answer to. If you plan to keep staying up to date with versions of RSpec, you will eventually need to do all these code changes because you know they're deprecating the old way. Getting ahead of that gradually as we touch spec files, there's kind of no downside to it. That's true. Though maybe there is a person who exists out there who's like, I love this old version of RSpec and I will die on this hill that we have to stay on it. But I also think that I have preferences, but I'm not so attached to them. Ideally, you know, what I would love to receive is just like curiosity about like, oh, like, why did you make this change? And just kind of share my my reasoning. And sometimes in that process, I realize, you know, I don't have a great reason. And I'll just say, I don't have a great reason. This is just the way I like it. But if it doesn't work for you, like, tell me and I'll consider changing it back. Maybe that's where there's a lot of benefit is the sort of curiosity on the part of the existing team and sort of openness to both learn about existing practices, but also share about different practices from the new teammate. And maybe that's you're coming in and you have a different style where you like to write tests maybe without using uh, RSpec's let syntax. The team is using it. Maybe you can have a conversation with the team it's almost certainly not worth it for you to go and rewrite the entire test suite to not use let and be like, hey, first PR, I, I, I made your test better. Hundreds of files changed thousands of lines of code. Uh, I think that's actually a good segue into the question of how can a team support a new hire or a new developer who is still calibrating to uh, a code base? I think I'm curious about this being different from onboarding because, you know, there are a lot of things that we already kind of expect to give some extra time and and leeway for someone who's new coming in. But what might be some ways to support a new developer that are less well known? One that I really like is getting them involved as early as possible in code review because then they get to see the patterns that are coming in. And they can be involved in conversations on those. First PR you're reviewing, you see a bunch of tests leaning heavily on let. And maybe you ask a question, is this a pattern that we're following in this code base? Did we have a particular motivation for why we chose this? You don't want to do it in a sort of like passive aggressive way because you're trying to push something else, right? It has to come from a place of genuine curiosity. But you're allowing the new teammate to both see a lot of the existing patterns kind of in very quick succession because you see a pretty good cross-section of those when you review code, and also to have conversations about them, to ask anything like, oh, that's unusual, I didn't know we were doing that. Or, hey, is this a pattern that we're doing kind of just local to this subsystem, or is this something that's happening all the way? Is this a pattern that we're using and liking? Is this a thing that we were doing five years ago that we're phasing out, but there's still a few of them left? Those are all, I think, great questions to ask when you're getting started. That makes a lot of sense. It's different from saying, this is how we do things here and expecting them to adapt or, you know, change to fit into that style or culture and being open to letting it evolve, right? Based on the new team, new the new people on the team and what they might be bringing to the table. 
I like to ask the question, what do you need to know? Or, or what do you need to be successful? As opposed to telling them what I think they need. <laughs> I, I think that is something that I actually kind of recently, not regret exactly, but I was kind of helping out some folks who were going to be joining the team and just trying to like shove all this information down their throats and be like, oh, and watch out for these gotchas. And this app uses a lot of callbacks and they're really complex. And I think I was maybe coloring their experience a little bit and expecting them to be able to drink from the fire hose as opposed to trusting that they can see for themselves, you know, like what is going on and form opinions about it and ask questions that will support them in whatever they are looking to do, right? Uh, when we talked earlier about the the four different quadrants, like the kind of information they need to know will differ based off of their task, based off of their experience. So that's one way that I am thinking about to like make space for a new developer to help shape that culture um, rather than insisting that things are the way they are. It can be a fine balance where you want to be open to change while also you have to remain kind of ruthlessly pragmatic about the fact that change can be expensive. And so a lot of changes you need to be justified and you don't want to just be rewriting your patterns for every new employee or, you know, just to follow the latest trends because we've seen a lot of trends come and go in the Rails ecosystem and getting on all of them is just not worth our time. And that's the hard truth of there's always trade-offs in software development. Isn't that right? It sure is. You can't always chase the newest shiny as fun as that is. On that note, shall we wrap up? Let's wrap up. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm. This show has been produced and edited by Mandy Moore. If you enjoyed listening, one really easy way to support the show is to leave us a quick rating or even a review in iTunes. It really helps other folks find the show. If you have any feedback for this or any of our other episodes, you can reach us at underscore bike shed, or you can reach me at Joel Ken on Twitter. Or reach both of us at hosts at bikeshed.fm via email. Thanks so much for listening to The Bike Shed, and we'll see you next week. Bye! Bye. Did you know ThoughtBot has a referral program? If you introduce us to someone looking for a design or development partner, we will compensate you if they decide to work with us. More info on our website at tbot.io slash referral, or you can email us at referrals at thoughtbot.com with any questions.